Lord, to whom shall we turn? You have the words of life. May your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and the glory of Christ our single concern. Amen. The reading in this week's uh, second lesson is from the book of Mark, chapter 1. We pick up right where we left off last week, Mark chapter 1, starting with verse 21. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. Just then there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once, his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Maybe the most intriguing and obvious question of a text like this one is what are you supposed to make of unclean spirits? That's the question that a lot of commentaries begin with. A lot of the reading that I did, that was the the question that came up right away, is what are pastors and preachers in 2018 supposed to do with the prevalence of all of the unclean spirits that exist in the New Testament? The New Testament worldview is animated by a very lively spiritual realm. What are we supposed to do with that? In 2018, how much authority and credence do we give to this sort of understanding of the world? That's kind of the question that comes up first. But as I sat with this text, it became really obvious that the better question, the real question, the one whose answer fundamentally matters for us, it's not whether the unclean spirits have the same sort of authority today. It's whether Jesus has the same sort of authority today that he had in this passage. Does Jesus really hold the same kind of power that he claims to have in the Gospels? Everyone knows everyone's business in Capernaum. It's a little town on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is really too grand of a name for that body of water. It makes you think that it's this huge, open expanse of water, Sea of Galilee. But it's really more like a lake. You can see all the way around it from any side of the sea. You can see the other, the other side and the, the sandy shores and the little huts that dot the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's on the north side of the sea, Capernaum, and it's home to about a thousand people, more if you include the shepherds that live in the hills that surround it. Peter and Andrew live there. James and John apparently are from Capernaum. Capernaum kind of becomes home base for Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew calls it Jesus' own city, though technically he's from 
an even smaller village called Nazareth. I got to go to Capernaum a few years back when I went to Israel with my, uh, with my seminary. And they have a sign that says, Capernaum, the town of Jesus. And you can go to this synagogue. And it's the same stones that would have been there. If the stones had ears, they could have told us what, uh, what Jesus had said. It's really a surreal experience. You can sit on the white marble stones in the synagogue in Capernaum and imagine that Jesus was walking by. It's unreal. The synagogue was the center for teaching. It was... Um, it's less a house of worship and sacrifice than it is a center of, of teaching. The temple was in Jerusalem, and that was the heart of, um, of worship and sacrifice. Of course, Jesus often is in Jerusalem doing things at the temple, which have a different significance than um, being in the synagogue. The synagogue was more academic. It was teaching. It was learning. It was the arms that the temple used to extend its reach. Families were, were formed by the teaching of the synagogues. Everywhere that... Uh, anywhere there were, there were ten families, there was supposed to be a synagogue. And so they were all over the place. Even a little town like Nazareth, which you know had 100, 200 people in it, had a synagogue because there were at least ten families. And so there was a synagogue there where they would read the Torah, read the, um, read the Old Testament texts, and, and, and then people would teach on them. The, the synagogue had, um, had attendants who... You know, I imagine swept the steps before Sabbath so that it was ready for people and, and, and got things ready. They passed the offering baskets, took the alms, um, took care of the scrolls that the synagogue had in its possession. Synagogues had an attendant and they also had a minister who um, oversaw the work of the synagogue. They might have taught the young, um, the, the, the Jewish boys that came to learn to, to memorize the Torah. They might have overseen the families and they would have... Um, Delegated who was supposed to do the teaching in the synagogue on Sabbath. And on a Sabbath, the attendant would pull out the assigned scroll for the day and roll it onto a stone table, and then the minister would, would, would oversee who was going to read the scroll and offer an interpretation. It could be anyone. Anyone. It didn't have to be a minister. It didn't have to be ordained or have um, any special certification. It could be anyone. The minister would choose someone. And the chosen preacher would read the text and offer a homily, a reflection. They would reference Abraham and Moses. They would talk about other Old Testament texts, tie things together perhaps. They might have referred to other rabbis that had taught on specific texts. And Mark tells us that the crowds first begin to notice Jesus' power, his authority. It's the same word in Greek. Exousia. His, his, they, they, they first begin to notice his authority, not because there's some grand, elaborate miracle, but because of his teachings. Jesus said things that other people didn't say. A week or two before, he had been at the synagogue in Nazareth, Luke tells us. Luke, Luke, Luke uh, gives us this story about the synagogue in Capernaum, but before it, he says Jesus was in Nazareth, south and west of Capernaum, and he had been to the synagogue in Nazareth, and the attendant pulled out Isaiah's scroll and unrolled it to the assigned text for the day, and Jesus was chosen to read. And so Jesus stood with the text and read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. 
Jesus rolled the scroll up and handed it back to the attendant. He sat down, and everyone waited for him to wax poetic about the Jewish people being captives under Rome, and how if they got their act together, God would rescue them like he did in the good old days. Maybe Jesus would talk about Moses and how God rescued Israel from Egypt, and how if families followed the laws of Moses, if they got back to the words of Moses, Israel could reclaim its glory days. But Jesus sat down. One of the stones, they would have been sort of in a circle, sat down in the synagogue and said, the scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. And Luke tells us that the people were amazed and asked, how can this be? Isn't this that's Joseph's kid, isn't it? Jesus made claims that the scribes couldn't, didn't, wouldn't, shouldn't make. Maybe the synagogue in Capernaum had heard about Jesus' outlandish claims. Maybe they wanted to hear for themselves. They couldn't believe what they had heard about Jesus in Nazareth. And so they give him the floor when it's time to hear the homily. Or maybe they're just excited to hear from this prophet. Whatever he had to say about the scroll that day in Capernaum was something. It left the people floored, apparently. And it wasn't, I don't think, that he had a larger-than-life personality or performance, something you might get from like a Tony Robbins, that they just had, had never seen anyone with Jesus' demeanor and posture and authority when, when, when he spoke. Jesus, from everything we know, was a pretty unremarkable-looking man. He certainly had a way with words, but having a way with words doesn't get you killed. There's something about what Jesus says that carries with it a, a, an authority that no one else claimed to have. Jesus said things like, you've heard it said by Moses, mind you, an eye for an eye, but I say to you, do not resist an evil man. But if he slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him as well. Saying things like, um, you've heard it said by Moses would be like, if I stood up here and said, you've heard it said by Jesus do this, but I say do something else. You can imagine Jesus getting run out of a town, right? Um, the authority that he speaks with is not the sort of authority and power and presence that we think of, you know, someone, a master with rhetoric, you know, like an Obama or an Oprah or um, Suze Orman or someone who, who speaks with a sort of aura about them. Now, Jesus was claiming a certain authority. He was speaking under the guise of an authority that no one else would, even got close to talking like. Jesus didn't say things like, this is what I believe the truth is. He said, I am the truth. He didn't say, you know, this is what Moses meant. Jesus said things like, you've heard it said. By Moses, mind you, an eye for an eye. But I say to you, don't resist an evil man, but if he slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other as well. This is like if I got up here and said, you've heard Je it said that Jesus said, do this, but I say to you, do this. It would get me run out of town, right? You can imagine why Jesus would get run out of town because of the outlandish sort of things he was saying, the authority he was claiming to have. You've heard it said by Moses, but I say to you something else. That was a bold thing to do. Jesus didn't say things like, this is what I believe the truth is. He said, I am the truth. And so people became 
divided, obviously, between people who were convinced that Jesus had the sort of authority that, 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 that gave him the freedom to say these things and people who didn't. Um, as Jesus is leaving the synagogue and people are already just talking about the authority that he claims to have when he teaches. As he's leaving the synagogue, a man approaches him with an unclean spirit. Man with an unclean spirit is how Mark says it. That's how it says it in the Greek, which is very PC. Mark doesn't call the man a demoniac. He calls him a man with an unclean spirit. And the spirit speaks and says, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The Spirit knows who Jesus is, which is the irony in this story. The crowd who faithfully attends synagogue every Sabbath leaves asking the question, Who is this? But the crazy man that you try to avoid on the L, the unclean spirit, knows exactly who Jesus is. It's kind of a, an irony that Mark, is, that Mark is identifying. Almost every time unclean spirits speak to Jesus, they name him exactly as he is. It's kind of interesting. But Jesus rebukes the spirit, says, Fimao, shut your mouth. Literally, a, a word used about animals, muzzle yourself. Shut your mouth. And the unclean spirit convulses and leaves the man the glaze in his eyes fades to a clear, brown, dilating pupils. His flailing arms that kept people standing at a distance settle peacefully at his side. The cagey breathing of a man possessed becomes deep breaths and then tears as he experiences wholeness and freedom. And let's not lose the miracle of Jesus' authority. That the captives are set free and the oppressed are liberated. A human in bondage to fear and evil is released. An untouchable destined for a lonely death is given new life. And whatever this man was plagued with, an evil schizophrenic spirit or manic episodes or whatever ungodly possession took over his body and mind, whatever it was, it had no authority before the authority of Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God, Indeed, here is a man who teaches with authority, the crowds say. And evil itself bends its knee. In Mark 11, authority comes up again. This time the religious leaders corner Jesus and they ask him point blank, clarify for us again, under what authority do you teach and say these things? It's a crucial question. It's partly why Mark writes his gospel. He wants to clarify for anyone who thought that, that Jesus claimed the authority of, of, of a prophet or the authority of a scholar of Moses, that that's not what Jesus claimed. And Mark opens the book saying it this way. This is the account of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. That's the only way Mark knew to make sense of who Jesus was. The very Son of God. When the Pharisees corner him, Jesus alludes their question. He won't answer them. It's only really at the end of his ministry where he comes out and says it. He says it in Matthew this way. He makes the outlandish claim as bluntly as grandpa at the dinner table. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's a verse that, uh, I don't know, maybe we've heard too many times. I've known a lot of 
teachers, professors, people who claim to have authority. You listen to TED Talks, people claim a certain authority based on their expert expertise or their research or whatever they've done. They claim a certain kind of authority, and Jesus claims an ultimate authority in his life. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And two things ought to shock us about this claim. And the first, of course, is the ridiculousness of it, the boldness, the scope, the gravity of that claim. And it's either true or it isn't. He's, you know, gosh, he's either crazy or he's God. It's either true or it isn't. And one of the reasons that many suspected that it, that it wasn't true is where that authority and power led him. Many suspected it wasn't true because all the authority and power of heaven and on earth led Christ not to crush his enemies, not to damn those who opposed him, to prove wrong those who disagreed with him, not to take great vengeance on the ones who cleverly masterminded his death or who said, he saved others, let him save himself. The picture Jesus gives us of all power and authority in heaven and on earth is of a man bleeding, carrying his cross, looking at those who are mocking him and saying, Father, forgive them. With all the power of heaven and on earth, he withheld judgment from those that the world condemns. With all the power of heaven and earth, he had compassion on those the world hides their eyes from. And to our eyes, I'm not sure that's very impressive or convincing. That all the power in heaven and on earth would be crucified. Jesus taught as one with true authority. He said things that no one else said. He made claims about the love and the heart of God as if somehow he knew them firsthand. He taught not beholden to the authority of Moses, but as if he could pull back the veil and speak the very heart of God from the source. And everyone who heard it paid attention. And they said, what is this? And the real question is whether the same Jesus that walked up those synagogue steps in Capernaum holds the same sort of authority. And if he does, does he still stand ready to cast out the unclean spirits that whisper despair and hopelessness? Does he still look to mend the brokenness in our bodies, the fracture in our relationships, the weakness in our wills? And the testimony of Christians and of the church offers a resounding yes to that outlandish claim. Yes, says Paul, who encounters Christ on the road to Damascus, and Christ's power causes that religious zealot to consider his religion as worthless as dirty rags. Yes, says the Palestinian Christian, whose hope in the power of Christ keeps them going through security checkpoints day after day and sways their temptation to grab power through guns and violence. Yes, says the woman whose cancer is in miraculous remission and the one whose cancer is not in remission but who finds in the Christ of Capernaum one who lays aside the power and glory and authority of the heavens to be with her, the frail and failing, in their death 
and to help them conquer it on the other side. Miroslav Volf writes, The cross is the giving up of God's self in order not to give up on humanity. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to Christ. And what he does with that authority is to give it back, to give that power back in order to have divine communion with us. This is the good news of the gospel. Amen.